How are you guys? Um, for those of you who either belly flopped or got blobbed, how are you physically? Okay. okay, I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you survived. Um, for some of you, I was really worried. Uh, for others of you, I was really entertained. But either way, I, there was some worry involved. Um, so watching that video, uh, so you guys need to know, I've never seen these videos before, just like many of you have not seen them before. And so I, I'm riveted. Like I'm in the back like watching like, yeah, yeah, I really wish I could make my whole entire sermon rhyme. Uh, I'm thinking through all those things. Um, but as I was listening to the end of what you just watched, um, there's this kind of explanation of Jesus that maybe can be summed up in one word, disruptive. Like when he starts asking, why did they kill him? Why did they make him a villain? Uh, that did rhyme. You should be proud. Um, like they, they, they're asking, he's asking the question, why was Jesus, if all that he was doing was healing people and having nice teachings and, and multiplying food and doing kind things for people, why then all of a sudden would people be so outraged at something so good? And the thing was that Jesus was being disruptive. And what we'll see, uh, we're going we're gonna to span some distance tonight. We're going to go from John chapter 2 all the way through the end of John chapter 6. Uh, and in doing that, um, I'm really going to spend a lot of time in John chapter 4. But what we're going to see is we're going to see these pictures of Jesus doing things that if we just looked at them in isolation, if you just read them at different points in your life, you might say, hey, man, that's really awesome, some of the things that Jesus did. Why did anybody have a problem with that? But I want to put before you that Jesus is the type of disruption that you cannot ignore. And I love that the video ends with this, this kind of challenge of you get two options. Either you crown him king or you call for his death. And so there's this reality about Jesus that we're going to see that Jesus doesn't leave much space for you to be like, I'm not sure. Either he is who he claims to be, or he is this guy who's doing really cool things, but somebody should lock him up in a, in a white jacket that ties up in the back because he's, because he's insane. And so Jesus' disruption demands our attention, and that's where we'll be tonight. So give me an opportunity to pray, and then we'll jump in. I'll review John 2 and 3. We'll jump into 4, and then I'll kind of talk through 5 and 6 and how it all connects. So, Jesus, thank you. Thank you for um, just a fantastic day. Thank you for um, uh, this morning uh, being in chapel and just watching students develop some skills of how to understand your scripture, observe what it says, apply it to their life, and then pray that you would help them to live what they've seen through the fun events that we've had all throughout the day to um, the, the session that we had this afternoon, the seminar, just talking through some real ways that truth and love can be applied. And then now moving into the evening, Lord, you've just been with us all day. You've been with us in the fun. You've been with us in the serious. You have been near to us. That as we enter into your word, I'm just asking, Lord, for your, 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 your stamina, your ability for us to lean in and focus on what you're doing, that you would show yourself as you are, that we would respond faithfully. It's in your name I pray. Amen. So John chapter 2, uh, we just ended la last night, we ended with uh, Jesus has been having these conversations uh, with uh, Andrew and John and then ultimately Peter and then Philip and Nathaniel, and they're all recognizing this, Jesus is, this is the guy. 
And so you would think, okay, man, all these people are recognizing that Jesus is the guy. The next thing is he's going to launch like a podcast, like he's going to like start a show. He's going to like have, he's going to do an Instagram live where people can like start following him. And the next thing that happens is you jump into John chapter two and Jesus is at a wedding. Like, can you imagine Jesus, savior of the earth, taking time to go do the Cupid shuffle at somebody's wedding before he, like, like, to the left, to the left, to the right, right. Like, Jesus took some time to be at somebody's wedding. And in fact, in the middle of that, this person who didn't plan well for their wedding runs out of wine, and Jesus actually isn't going to do anything. And Jesus' mom says, no, you need to fix this. And he's like, it's not my time yet. And she, like, as if she wasn't paying attention to what she was saying, said to the servants, you need to go get six large vats of water. My son's about to do his thing. And Jesus, like any good son, did what his mama said. And so Jesus turns this water into wine, and the person that's hosting the wedding is like, man, this wedding's awesome. Most people like start with the good wine at first, and when everybody's had enough, and they're kind of a little bit tipsy, then you start bringing out the cheap stuff, but y'all save the best stuff for last. And it says that the glory of God was shown and that disciples were made because of Jesus doing that, which is mind-blowing because that, like, that doesn't feel like it's all that significant, but Jesus interrupts this wedding that he was invited to by showing God's power. Then it moves into Jesus having this kind of really deep understanding of human nature. And so first, he enters into the temple where there are things going on in the temple that don't glorify God. And Jesus doesn't just stand by and watch. Jesus comes in and starts clearing out the temple. He's disrupting what's going on. And then he would make the statement that I don't need anybody to explain the heart of man to me because I see the heart of man. Shortly thereafter, there's a guy named Nicodemus. Nicodemus is one of the religiously elite people. And Nicodemus realizes that if I align myself with Jesus, it might cost me something. And so in the middle of the night, he sneaks up to Jesus and says, hey, man, you're, you're, you're a fantastic teacher. And so usually when somebody gives you a compliment, here's what we do. We say, thank you. Or we feign false humility to be like, oh, shucks. Well, I mean, I'm not that great a teacher. I'm, just, I'm, I'm average. I'm doing the best I can with what I got. And Jesus' response to him is, unless you're born of the spirit and water, unless you're born again, you cannot be part of the kingdom of heaven. Now, first of all, if I'm Nicodemus, I'm like, did you skip a page? Because that wasn't what we were talking about. But Jesus is disrupting the conversation. Like, I'm not here for compliments. I'm not here for your worldly evaluation. I'm here to show you what it is to be part of the kingdom of God and the people of God. And if you don't understand what it means to be born again, then you're missing out on the fullness of what God's trying to do. This is where we get the famous verse, John 3:16, that God so loved the world, but it's in the context of Jesus explaining to Nicodemus the purpose for why he was there, that he had come to show up in the world to redeem what was lost because of God's love for the world. And then after the conversation with Nicodemus, a guy named John the Baptist, whom we saw, um, we saw him earlier saying, hey, I'm not the Christ, but man, when he comes, I'm not on his level. And Jesus is baptizing, and we'll, we'll hear a little bit about that in chapter 4. Jesus is actually leading the baptisms, but he's not dunking people in the water. And more people are starting to go to Jesus than are going to John. And John's disciples are like, John, do we need to go over there and handle business with Jesus right now? It's not what your Bible says, but just, 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 just follow me. And, and, and John's like, no. I need to get out of the way, and he needs more room because my whole purpose is to point to him. And so they're struggling with Jesus because Jesus is kind of disrupting their gig. Jesus is on their corner. They were the repent the kingdom of God is at hand people, and Jesus is taking all their people. Jesus is being disruptive. 
And then when you get to John chapter 4, we see this picture of Jesus interacting with this woman that says so much about who he is and the authority that he has that we can't just breeze through it. We need to slow down and see it really clearly. And so John chapter 4, starting in verse 1, says this. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to the town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour, or it was around noon. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. I'll explain why in a second. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, have you, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be, not be thirsty or have to come to draw water. Now, there's a lot of uh, layers under what we just read that I think are really important for you, need, for you to understand, um, to understand why Jesus is kind of being disruptive in this moment. So the first one is this, um, this area of Samaria. Uh, last night I talked about Nazareth was the hood, and you didn't want to go to Nazareth unless you had to, and so you certainly don't want to be born there. Um, Samaria wasn't necessarily the hood, but Samaria was the side of town that, uh, that, that the Israelites had rivalry with. And so if you read your Old Testament, the, the kingdom of Israel um, actually at one point became two kingdoms, a northern kingdom that was 10 of the tribes, and then a southern kingdom that was two of the tribes. And the northern kingdom that was of the ten tribes, um, for, for survival's sake, began to intermarry and intermix with other cultures. And so for those who were down in Judea, they would look up to them and they'd be like, you guys weren't faithful, you weren't pure, um, you're not fully the people of God like we're fully the people of God. And so there was this disdain for Samaria because it was like, you guys didn't live this out in the pure way that you were supposed to. So there's nothing wrong with Samaria in terms of if you park your camel in the wrong part of Samaria, somebody might hijack you. It was more a situation that if you were in Samaria, it said something about who you were. Uh, maybe a way to put it is it, it, it was maybe more political than anything. Now, some of you were like, oh, no, I knew it was kind of one of these. I, I'm not having a conversation about politics, though we could do that if you want to. But the conversation is more about there is this cultural divide. There was this reason of looking at these people as other in such a way that you don't go to Samaria. So much so that Jesus wanting to pass through Samaria, he could have gone around Samaria. It may have taken longer, but for whatever reason, Jesus decided that we need to go through Samaria. And then they get into Samaria and Jesus stops at a well and says, hey, you guys go into town and get food. I'm going to hang out here. 
And I don't want to miss the concept of this woman who walks up to the well, and when she gets there, Jesus is waiting for her. I don't want that concept to be passed on you. You aren't waiting for Jesus to show up in your life. Jesus is waiting on you. Like, it's, it's crazy to me that the eternal son of God, who's got 33 years on earth, he's got three years to do ministry, and he's got so many things to accomplish. I mean, redeeming the world is a full-time job. And he decides to take a break at the middle of the day at a well to have a conversation with the woman that as we get to know more about her life, we recognize it's one thing that she's from Samaria, but even from people from Samaria don't want to spend that much time with her. Here's how we know that. Um, this woman is going to the well in the middle of the day. Uh, camp at noon is hot. And so if, you were, if somebody was like, hey, you guys are actually in the wrong cabin. You need to take all of your stuff from your cabin to another cabin on the other side of camp. And everybody's like, man, but we're in the middle of free time and we're really nailing it. And so we elect you to carry everybody's luggage all the way across camp. You don't want to do that. But you certainly want to do that at 12 noon when it's hot and it's the middle of the day. You're like, uh, can I get a golf cart and can I do this at night? Because the reality is that that's the wrong time of day to be doing heavy physical exertion but the reason that you do something like that is because the well isn't just a place where you get water. The well is a place where people come around and they have common relationship and interact with each other. And so the reason that this woman is going to the well in the middle of the day is not because it just functionally fits her schedule. It's because it doesn't functionally fit everybody else's. She's trying to avoid people. She's trying to get to the well in the middle of the day because she doesn't want to have to have conversations with people because as we read in the second part of the text, there's some things about her and her past that um, she doesn't want to have conversations about. So this woman who's going to the well at the wrong time of day shows up and Jesus is just chilling, waiting on her. And when she walks up to get her water, Jesus says to her, hey, can you give me a drink? And she's like, uh... What? One thing you'll find out about this woman is that she has been married five times and then she's now living with a man who is not her husband. And so here's what this woman knows. She knows a, a pickup line. She knows a good pickup line and she knows a bad one. And give me some water is not a good pickup line. And she actually, actually says to Jesus, this doesn't make any sense. Like, you don't have anything to draw water with. And he goes, he goes a step further. He said, like, actually, if you knew who I was, You'd ask me to give you water. Well, now it's just gotten weird. Who's getting water, Jesus? And she says, are you greater than our father Jacob? Because the well is deep and you don't have anything to draw with. He drank from this water and his sons drank from this water. His livestock drank from this water. And then Jesus takes the conversation a completely different place. He's like, hey, if you knew who was asking you and if you knew what I was asking you for, the type of water that I'll give you, you'll never thirst again. And she was like, do you work for Sparklets? You gonna deliver water at my house? What's, what's going on here? And she's like, but if this water is eternal water and I would never be thirsty again and I would never have to go through the shame of hiding out, in the middle, hiding out during the right times to get water and show up in the middle of the day, if that's what you got, I want some of that. And so Jesus is like, have you ever been around somebody who's got like a thread on their shirt and it's kind of hanging out and you're tempted to pull on the thread to see what happens? Jesus is pulling on the thread. 
So this woman is showing up at an odd time in the day, not having other people around her. She's showing up with the pretense that she wants to get some water. And so Jesus said, hey, if this is what you came for, can I get some water? And she's like, "Mm, nah, dude, what are you up to? And then he begins to offer her some water, and her response is not just about, okay, well, that would be really helpful because functionally I need some water. Her response is, I have this deeper longing, this deeper thirst, and if you could satisfy that where I didn't have to do this anymore, I want to be in on that. And so this is a similar conversation to what we had yesterday. What are you seeking? What do you want from Jesus? If he's waiting on you, if he's available, if he's sitting there, if he's willing to interact with you, even though the way that the culture works, he should not interact with you. She was shocked. She said, wait a minute, you're a Jew. I'm a Samaritan. We don't have conversations. Jesus, you're disrupting some stuff. You're not supposed to be in my part of town. You're not supposed to be having conversations with people like me. And if you really knew who I was, you definitely wouldn't have a conversation with me. What She's startled by the way he's interacting with her, but I want to ask the question, if he's going to disrupt you and, and say, hey, I'm available, what is it that you want? Jesus' response to her, starting in verse 16, says this. Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband, which just feels like a real bad day in church that Jesus is going to put your business in the streets. Like, come on, Jesus, you could have just said, hey, look, I know, I know, I know. But he just just outed her. And here's what I love. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. (laughs) You know some stuff about me. And then changes the subject. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Your worship, uh, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said, I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. And so now, so catch what's going on, right? Like, so Jesus has has responded to her and says, okay, well, uh, if you want this, what I have to offer, go get your husband. And she responds, I don't have a husband, which is, I mean, kind of sort of true. That's kind of like when your mom was like, hey, what time are you going to be home? And you're like, I'll be home after 10. And then you're like, any time that's after 10, it could be 10.01, it could be 2 a.m. I'll be home after 10. It's kind of true, but it ain't true. And so Jesus lays the truth in front of her. And she immediately moves from her situation to having a theological debate about worship. Like, he calls out the fact that she's had five husbands and none of those relationships have worked out and that she's moved into a sixth. Like, that in our culture gets you on a talk show in the middle of the day. Like, that's the type of person that I'm like, hey, you've got some issues that we need to talk about. 
Like this is the type of thing to be avoided. No wonder in the middle of the day she's going when nobody else is getting water. You don't want to go get water in the middle of the day because you might bump into some woman that you are used to be with her man that she's with now. Like that could just get awkward real quick. Like there's a very good reason why she's probably the talk of the town. And when she comes around, people are like, "Mm -mm, don't trust her around your man. And so Jesus exposes that and her response is to say, well, you're a prophet, so let's talk about theology. You're a prophet, so let's talk about the right places and the right modes of worship. You're a prophet, and so let's have a conversation, not about me, not about my mess, not about my shame, not about my past, not about my background. Let's talk about things over here that are theoretical ideas that don't have anything to do with me and where I'm at. And Jesus is like, man, if you want to play that game, let's play that game. And so she's arguing about, do we worship on this mountain? Do we worship in Jerusalem? And Jesus' response is, there's a day that's coming that none of that's going to matter. There's a day that's coming that the place where the Lord's presence is meant to dwell is going to be in you, with you, in spirit and in truth. And I think that's really important. Because I think our world wants to draw this dividing line between spirit and truth. And so depending on your background, the way that you grew up, you might be a spirit person. I grew up as a spirit person. Um, I grew up in an environment where um, the way that the Holy Spirit operated was was seen as really important and emphasized, maybe even emphasized in an unhealthy way. And so um, we didn't spend a lot of time understanding our Bibles well. We just spent a lot of time stirring up what we feel. And hear me say to you, I think your feelings matter. I'm not one of those preachers that are going to jump up and be like, your feelings are liars. Your feelings are liars, but so is your intellect. And so I'm not going to say that what you feel doesn't matter. It actually indicates something that is true, that you're feeling and responding to something that is a reality. Like that matters, but your feelings alone can't lead you to understanding Jesus rightly. But then on the other side, there is a a, a side of the spectrum that sees truth as being primary and sees us as brains that walk around with legs that is only thinking about propositional truth and not necessarily moving that down into our hearts. And the division of the two, Jesus said, that's not actually how you worship the Lord. So we can have this argument about the right place to worship, but that's an intellectual argument. I'm trying to get past your head down to your hearts. I need you to know that as much as we're talking about truth this week and truth matters and truth is a challenge that you face day after day, I also understand that nobody is going to come to Jesus because I give you the right doctrinal argument about him. People's lives are transformed to coming to Jesus because they see the display of who God is in his mercy through Jesus, and it moves from this intellectual idea down into the spirit of their being, into their innermost person, and says that if there's that type of acceptance from the God of heaven through the Son who is displaying it, I want to know more about that. And so Jesus' statement to her is, hey, we can have this intellectual truth conversation because it is important, but God is ultimately spirit. And this idea of God being spirit is that God is this life-giving spirit, not just this idea. So we can argue about facts. In fact, I told you, um, if if you were in the session with me earlier, I told you that when I was growing up, I wanted to be a lot of things. One of the things that I wanted to be was a lawyer. I'm still convinced I would have made a fantastic lawyer because I like arguing with people. And I don't like just argue because I like to argue. I argue because I think I'm right. 
Like, if I don't think I'm right, I'm not going to argue. So I can argue facts with you all, with you all day. I got a group of friends that we, um, we were pastors and basketball coaches all over the nation. And the name of our group text is MJ is greater than LeBron, which is problematic because a kid thought that I was LeBron. Yeah. I'm a little worried that that's the thing that got the most response so far this week. Um, but we'll just leave it alone. I'll take it when I can get it. We argue facts, data. We argue number of MVPs and, and free throw percentage. Like we argue stupid stuff that are these intellectual ideas, but that don't transform anybody. I've been in this group chat for two and a half years and nobody's moved. Nobody's like, you know what? I do think MJ's better now that you gave me that statistic that was readily available to me. Because there's something about what you ultimately believe that sometimes uh, as much as you can get the information in your mind, if it doesn't affect your spirit, your heart, your inner being, like if it doesn't get there, it's not going to make a difference. And so even Jesus' statement that God is spirit, that he's not this fact in a history book, but he's this living, life-giving being that permeates the presence of the world, that going back to last yesterday morning, that his presence is everywhere, affecting and ruling over everything, that God is spirit, and you worship him both in the truth that you know, but also the innermost part of who you are. Jesus is making a statement, we can have an intellectual conversation, but it's going to have to go farther than that, sis. And so her response is, man, the way you're talking to me, it makes me think about how the scriptures have talked about there's someone who's coming, this king, this ruler, this anointed one of God who is going to make the world right, that the Messiah is going to come. And for the first time, Jesus just openly says, yeah, that's me. And I don't want you to miss the power of Jesus saying, I am he. And so one of the things is he's responding to her, like everything that you're hoping for, everything that you're looking for, everything that you're believing about, I'm that. I'm not just some good teacher. I'm not just some prophet. I'm the one that's sent of God to be the anointed one to, to do what you as a people have been asking for for a long time. I am he. But the language of I am is also really important. Because if you jumped all the way back to the book of Exodus, Moses is, uh, if, you don't, if you don't know Moses' story, Moses was born uh, as a Jew, but to, they were killing firstborn children that were Jewish. And so his mom put him in the Nile River. Uh, Moses literally means to be drawn out. And the woman that found him was the daughter of Pharaoh, hired Moses' mom to take care of him, and he's being raised in Pharaoh's house. And as he's being raised in Pharaoh's house, he knows who he is, knows what country and people he comes from, sees this Egyptian slave master being harsh to a Hebrew person, and kills the slave master. The next day he shows up and sees two Hebrew slaves arguing and he inter intercepts them and says, you guys got to stop. And they're like, what, are you going to kill us also? And he's like, oh, no, they know. And so he runs off into the wilderness and he wanders. The he's there for 40 years. In the time that he's there, he ends up getting married and, and tending to his father-in-law's sheep. And one day when he's tending to the sheep, he walks up to a bush and uh, this bush is problematic. It's disruptive because it's on fire, but it's not being burned. 
Now, my personality is when I see something like that, I'm like, hmm, I need to go the opposite direction. But Moses says, I'm going to walk up to this thing. And the Lord begins to speak out of the burning bush, telling him to take off the shoes, for he stands on holy ground. And when Moses is standing there, like the Lord begins to tell him, this is what I'm going to do through you. And Moses is like, ain't nobody going to believe this. Uh, I'm going to need you to, to, to validate that you said this. And so when, when I ask them, when I tell them somebody sent me, who are you going to say sent me? And his response is, I am. And that I am response, it's this present tense, ever living, uh, I am the God that is faithful to what I say I'm going to accomplish. And so in the same way that Moses is in this moment where he's isolated with God because of the shame of his past, trying to run from who he used to be, ends up in this, this isolated place in the wilderness, and the Lord speaks to him and says, I am who I say that I am. I can do what I say that I'm going to do. I'm faithful to all that I promised. We've got this woman standing at a well, isolated, running from her past, running into Jesus, sitting at the well. And when she says, I know God wants to do something, he's like, yeah, that same God, he's doing it right now. I am. So, as I read this, this is a big moment. So if I'm a disciple and I walk up on Jesus and this is happening, and this is a big moment, I want to recognize the moment. My guys from the text do not do that. Verse 27, just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with the woman, but no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her, jar, her water jar and went into town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. And so, like, like capture this. Like, Jesus having this conversation. I imagine if you're having a conversation with the, the one who's going to redeem the world, and they tell you that, you're, your response isn't like, oh, that's nice. What are you going to do after that? Like, I imagine there's some emotion. I imagine there's the... I've been waiting for this all my life. I can't believe this is happening. I imagine that she's so frantic in her response that she doesn't pick up the water that she uh, came to get, but she runs off, leaves the jar of water. And so if I'm a disciple and I walk up and I'm like, why is this lady crying and running off with her jar? She didn't get any water. Like, what's happened to Jesus? They don't, they don't care about any of that. They move right into, Rabbi, eat. Like, wait a minute, guys. Something more important is going on than lunch right here. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? So now their insecurity is coming out. Like, did we fail? Did somebody else buy Jesus Arby's? I don't even know if they could eat Arby's. They may not have been kosher, but Arby's is delicious, especially the curly fries. Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say that there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. And so hear what Jesus says. He's like, it's not just who I am, it's the reason why I'm doing this. He's like, 
you guys are worried about have I had lunch. I'm telling you there's something more important than whether my stomach's full. The thing that fills me up is doing the will of my Father. The thing that fills me up and makes me complete and whole is that I'm doing what the one who sent me called me to do, and now I'm inviting you guys to be a part of that with me. Like you're saying in the natural that when you look at the field, hey, we got four months and then it's harvest time. He's like, I'm telling you harvest time is now. We've got work to be about, fellas. And I imagine they're like, so you ain't going to eat this sandwich? That's what I would say if I was the disciple of this situation. I'd be in the background eating while he's giving the illustration. And then verse 39 says this. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told them all that I ever, he told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him and they asked him to stay with them, he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. And so I just want you to picture this scenario, because this is going to set up something for us when we talk about five and six, and I promise I'll fly through five and six. He he has this encounter with a woman, and her response to what her conversation with Jesus is, is that she runs back into a town that she's ashamed of being around those people, and she starts saying to them, come see a man. I, I can imagine how awkward that conversation has to be when she comes running to town with no water jar and says, hey guys, I met, some, I met a guy, and I'm sure the other girls are like, I bet you did. <laughs> you got a pattern about you. And she's like, no, no, he told me everything that he's ever done. This could possibly be the Christ. And so this woman who has a bad reputation is so convinced about Jesus that one, she no longer cares about what people think about her, but she's also so convinced about Jesus that she's compelling enough to convince these people who might question who she is to come find and see this guy. And so they stop what they're doing to go to the well in the middle of the day to say, okay, we need to know more. And it says that they believed because of her. And so they're so convinced that he is the Messiah that they say, hey, stay with us. And he stays for two more days. And all of a sudden, all of these other people who didn't hear directly from the woman are like, hey, first we believed because of what you said. But now we believe because we've actually heard him speak. We know who he is. We know what authority he has. We've seen the beauty of what he is able to accomplish. We trust that Jesus is the one that God has sent. That's really important because when you move to John chapter 5, There's a man who's been paralyzed for 38 years in the midst of thousands of people who are looking for a miracle and some water. And Jesus walks up, heals this guy. And when the guy, when Jesus walks away and the Pharisees ask, who did this? He's like, "Mm." Jesus goes back and like tells the guy, hey, you should not sin anymore. But there's, there's, there seems to be this, not the same movement in his heart towards Jesus that we're seeing in this woman and the people in Samaria. It then moves, if you move into John chapter 6, John chapter 6 is this, um, this crazy set of miracles. The first one, Jesus feeds 5,000 people, at least if you're only counting the men, off of, a, off of fish and loaves, five, fish, five loaves, two fish. Like he just it does this astounding miracle. And the people are so enamored by the miracle that when Jesus is going to the other side of the lake, like they out sprint Jesus and the boat to the other side of the lake to be waiting for him when he gets to the other side. In between, Jesus decides, you know what? I don't really need to be on the boat, so I'm just going to walk on the water. 
Like you're seeing like this back-to-back crazy stuff. And when Jesus gets to the other side, Jesus begins to teach. And they're like, uh, yeah, your teaching's awesome. But uh, you got lunch for us again? And Jesus was like, are you just here for bread? And they're like, well, Moses gave us bread. And Jesus was like, yeah, but Moses' bread passed away. He's like, but if you really want bread, then you should eat my flesh and drink my blood. Hey, don't get me wrong. If I walked out here and said mid-sermon, you guys should eat my flesh and drink my blood, if you guys all got up and left, I wouldn't blame you either. (laughs) But Jesus was trying to say, like, if you really want me, it's not about what I can do. It's about you receiving me. And it says in that moment, this crowd of people left, and he was stuck with just the disciples. And and this is a vulnerable moment of Jesus. He turns to them and says, hey, you guys going to leave me also? And Peter's response is, where else would we go? You're the one who has the words of life. Why is this important? Because Jesus is deeply disruptive. Because Jesus is doing things that break cultural norms, that Jesus is doing things that break sociological categories, that Jesus is doing things that break the safe bubble of we don't talk about our past, that Jesus is doing things of getting in the middle of your mess and lowering and reducing the shame that people who used to have to hide now are the people that proclaim his name. And at the same time, as disruptive as Jesus is to the positive, there are people that experience that power from Jesus and they're not changed at all. And so you have people who are healed that are like, you have people that are fed miraculously by Jesus and they're like, well, unless you give us more, we don't want to have any part in you. And I think it's because they miss who he is and the authority that he has. I'm going to ask a question. I'm going to set you up. I'm just telling you up front. How many of you in the room are dog people? How many of you in the room are cat people? <laughs> thus, thus the setup. Thus the setup. So, so there is a thing called cat-dog theology. Let me explain it to you really quickly. Uh, I'll give it to you in the story that I experienced, and then I'll explain the principle. Uh, back when I was in Dallas, I used to live in Dallas for about 10 years, uh, I led a ministry to college students, 18-year-olds to 35-year-olds, um, so really young adults. And there was a young lady in, in our ministry named Katie who had a baby. And so my wife and I went to go visit Katie, and at Katie, Katie lived with her mom, and they had cats and they had dogs. And as we pulled up to the house, the dogs are like losing their mind, like, if you, if you touch Katie or that baby, we will destroy you. We got inside, the cat was walking on uh, the fire, like walking right above the fireplace on the mantle. And he was kind of looking at us and he was like, take him out, I don't care. (laughs) And here's why I say that. Because here's how your cat responds to you. You feed me, you give me shelter, you give me safety. Some of you go all out and you like clothe your animals and like put sweaters on your cats, which is weird because they have fur. I must be God. Your dog says, you feed me, you give me shelter, you give me water, you're weird and you clothe me. You must be God because you take care of me in my weakness. 
And what I feel like we're seeing in John 2 through 6 is we're seeing a set of people that are seeing Jesus as being God because they're seeing the power and the authority that he displays. And so there's something about you that's utterly different than me. You're on a different level than I am. You must be God. And what we see in 5 and 6 is people who look at Jesus and say, after all the things that you've done for me, you must need to serve me. Prove to me that you're more than what I think you are. And I think we face a specific danger that if we're not careful, we can say we know who Jesus is and expect that to mean that, he does, that he's like a genie that gives us what we want. And I think that's why the authority of Jesus has to come right in line with the person of Jesus. That if you don't recognize the authority that he walks in, he will be reduced to somebody, uh, I have a friend that says it this way, that he will be your cosmic bellhop, that he will carry your bags wherever you want them to go as opposed to the savior of the world that deserves your devotion, that he, he requires your worship and that you would bow down. And so here's my encouragement and my, my challenge for courage tonight. I want you to worship Jesus in truth, but I also want you to worship Jesus in spirit. I want you to see God for who he is and the authority that he has and be willing to lay your life down before him. We sang a song earlier. It's an old song. When I was a kid in youth group, we used to sing the song, Give Us Clean Hands. And the song talks about, uh, give us clean hands, give us clean our hearts, we'll not, we'll not lift our souls to another. Oh God, let us be a generation that seeks, seeks your face, O oh God of Jacob. That song comes from Psalm 24. And the question of Psalm 24 that it starts with is, who's going to ascend the hill of the Lord? And the premise of the question is, who is worthy to bring themselves to the level of the Lord? And the response is, no one. And so the, the psalmist then says, okay, well then, then give us clean hands and give us pure hearts. Like, like make what we do right before you and make what we feel right before you. Have every part of us. Don't let us just understand that concept. Let us live that concept in every part of our being. Make us a people that recognize who you are and seek you in that way. And my prayer for you tonight is that we would be a people that recognize who he is and seeks him because of the authority that he has, understanding that it's not just an intellectual idea, but it requires both our minds and our hearts to be engaged. So let me pray for us. Jesus, I thank you. I thank you that you've been waiting for us. I thank you that there's not one of us that drove up to Hume this week and is waiting for you to show up, but you have been here. For 10 weeks you've been here. For even longer than that you've been here, waiting on specific people, knowing their story, knowing their past, knowing how to pull the thread to get beyond uh, the conversation that they want to have to the conversation that they need to have. And so, Lord, I pray you would be disruptive tonight, that you would cross cultural norms, that you would break categories, that you would push past shame, that you would push past things that people are trying to hide, and that you would enter in and say that 
I am the one that is faithful to do what the scriptures have been promising that I could do. Will you trust me? And would these students, would these leaders, with all the courage that they can muster, would they say, yeah, I trust you. I worship you. Not just with information that I know from a teaching that I heard, but with the deepest part of who I am, I trust you. Would you give them the courage to worship you in that way? It's in your name I pray. Amen.